out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello, and welcome to The C86 Show. I'm David Eastorm. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it is going to be the turn of the record producer, Mark Saunders, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love and poetry and all the other groovy stuff. Anyway, look, he's worked with a phenomenal amount of bands, including the uh, Chameleons, The Mission, The Cure, Tricky, Marilyn Manson, Depeche Mode. You get the gist. There was a lot. And um, also worked on the David Bowie and Mick Jagger single, Dancing in the Street. But um, yes, there's even more to the story than all that. That even starts before the, um, yes, 85. So look, after some casual chat, to get to know one another, as you do, we got down to that very interesting subject that was the early years and uh, those pivotal moments in music. And um, this is Mark's response to that very interesting point. Anyway, Mark, tell us about your pivotal moment that changes everything. It's over to you. Well, I can I can pinpoint that to one exact moment when um, um, I mean up to up to this point, music was you know I I wasn't I was more interested in like comedy. I was about ten, I think. I was more interested in funny things rather than music. And um, but my sister had just started bringing home. She's two years older, and she brought home. Um, like Led Zeppelin two or something, you know, and started playing that in the house. And, <clears throat> but the defining moment for me was, was there was a program. So this would be, you know, if I was 10, that's like 1969, 1970. Um, there was a, there was a thing called a summertime special. Yes. TV. Sunday evenings, or afternoons. Yeah. And when it, and it was like outside, it was an outdoor concert with lots of like, mostly like seem like old ladies sitting in deck chairs, you know, with a picnic watching things like the black and white minstrels or, you know, a puppet show or something, you know, it's all like mixed stuff. And then a couple of singers, but on this one occasion, deep purple were on. And I, I have no idea. I'm sure they had no idea what they'd been booked into. And, and they must've been really pissed off because this was not their crowd at all. And, and that, that totally blew my mind. And then at the end of it, they smashed up all their gear in the Who style. And the drummer kicked his drums over and his bass drum rolled off the stage. And, and there were like old ladies in deck chairs, like scattering to make room <laughs> for this oncoming bass drum. And, um, and I just thought, I want to do that. You know, oh, that yeah. was, and, and then I, you know, from then on, I wanted to play and um, <clears throat> I persuaded my parents to buy me a, a drum. I wanted a whole kit, but they bought me one snare drum. And, um, and then I had to work. Um, my dad was a farmer, so I had to work a whole harvest season on a tractor for it to, uh, to buy my first drum kit for 200 quid. Yes. My God. Yeah, well, it's interesting because with um, Deep Purple, it's one of those moments where, you know, you can't quite believe it, but Ian Gillen started his life in musical theatre doing Jesus Christ Superstar, didn't he? So um, I didn't know that. Yes. <laughs> so he's on the, one of the original albums from 1971 or two. And he, you know, and you think, oh, right, Ian Gillen, the voice, of course. It kind of makes sense. Mm. <laughs> so, uh, oh. yeah. So maybe it must have been later then if he was doing that in 1971, did you say? He, he, was, he was on one of those very early ones. So, um, okay. yeah. And, um, and, and obviously went on Spotify quickly and listened to him and thinking, I can't remember which character he plays, but obviously it's quite a, yes, he's got the voice for it, hasn't he? Which kind of we, we loved. Because my brother was seven years older than me. So he's now in his mid early 60s and he was into the prog rock scene. But he did have Deep Purple album and a Black Sabbath compilation, which when you're 10, 11, it just seemed like listen to Fire, Fireball and Burn. Mm-hmm. I was just like, God, that's incredible power. You know, that, that kind yeah. of was, that stuck with me all my life, really. Yeah, and um, yeah, Black Sabbath, um, Master of Reality was an album that I cherished. And I remember 
it's got this swirly spirally graphic that kind of hypnotizes you and i thought oh i wonder if it's dangerous to look at this you know because they're like you know they were like satan these guys i thought maybe it's designed to make you go mad and um so i was a bit nervous about that at the time but yes. i listened to that listened to that recently on um on spotify and i can't believe i mean the sound of that record is just incredible it doesn't sound like anything else black sabbath that those early records they're completely on their own as sound wise it's just uh it's it's kind of dead but powerful somehow i mean it's you know it's not a big monstrous rock sound but it is incredibly powerful mm. uh, i yes. love, love that record um, i know the days when i just remember when you were sort of talking about that Rick Wakeman had an album called The Journey to the Centre of the Earth, and there was this kind of oh, bit of yeah. foil that you had to look in. I don't know why, but it, it seemed like a good idea at the time. I'm sure I had that at some point. I don't remember that, though. The foil. So then what happens in the 70s? Because obviously you were old enough to experience that kind of punk moment and, and such like with that. Well, um, I wasn't... Uh, I was a bit you know i mean i was very isolated uh i didn't i didn't grow up in you know in a cool household with parents who were really cool and into music and all that kind of stuff my dad was a farmer and my um mum was a stay-at-home mum and there was no if apart from my sister nobody uh, before me played music in the house and um, you know my grandma played church organ so i didn't come from some you know cool thing and background and when punk came along I was like, what? I wasn't like, wow, this is amazing. I was like, why are they dressed like that? That just seems really uncomfortable. Yeah. And, um, but I did like, I really liked the Sex Pistols, um, the music, you know, the power of the music. And, and it was basically like good pop. And, um, I mean, I always loved pop music because I wasn't in London. There weren't, you know, there weren't record shops. I mean, it was, we were, a mile from the nearest bus stop to go to the nearest town. And um, so I just grew up listening to radio, top top 40 stuff on Radio 1. That was my only option. And uh, I've always loved pop music and the idea of, you know, three and a half minute single. Um, more than, you know, I didn't, I never went to clubs when I was a teenager because there weren't really any. Yeah, and so what part of the country did you grow up in? Uh, in Hampshire, right. I was near Basingstoke, which is probably one of the most soulless towns in, on the planet. Right. Because uh, because I grew up in a village, and it was a kind of a hard, you know, it was a you know, a very working class country lifestyle with you know just village life. So there was like you, if you needed money, you had to kind of get a part time job on a farm for a bit to do something quite mm-hmm. sort of hard work. And then, um, but there were no clubs or no trendy nothing. There was nothing trendy in in East Anglia. Yeah. At the time. Yeah, well, that's kind of yeah, pretty much where I was at. Nothing trendy there. Yeah. Um, um, but uh, so I can't remember what your original question now was. But um, yeah, there's the sort of progression into punk. So then, oh, you... the into punk. Yeah. Um, yeah. I. <clears throat> yeah, it took me a while to acclimatize to punk because also I've been at, when I was at school. <clears throat> I mean, I left school in like 1975, I guess, and then I went to sixth form college. But the whole time I'd been desperate to have long hair. And, um, you know, our school was really strict. It wasn't supposed to touch the collar. So we used to grow it as long as we could. And then when the teacher inspected, we'd pull our shirts back down and try and see if we could get away with a bit more. Yes. <clears throat> and, then, and then, you know, I'm, I'm like, I'm getting out of school. I can grow my hair. And then punk comes along. And I'm like, oh god, that's really annoying. Now it's not, <laughs> now it's not cool to have long hair. Damn, I know. I'm desperate to be, you know, like Jimmy Page or something. You know, long, long locks. But <clears throat> a member of the Eagles. But then, when yeah. um, so during the eighties, because I suppose this is the decade that I, I became kind of that's my awakening. So kind of you had Thatcher in seventy nine, and then sort of the Falkland, and then you know, you had that post-punk and then the kind of indie sound started. So what were you sort of beginning? Because obviously I, you were a little bit older. You must have been a bit more yeah. aware of those kind of changes. And, and suddenly the producer becomes quite a big thing, don't they? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> like Trevor Horn. Trevor like Horn. Yeah. 
Um, <clears throat> so I was playing in bands um, from from the moment I got my driving license, actually. That was my ticket to freedom, being out in the sticks. I'd been playing drums um, for quite a while in my dad's cow shed. And, um, <clears throat> and then I joined a local covers band um, when I was 17. And so I'd been playing in, in dodgy working men's clubs in, around Basingstoke, you know, the Royal Navy Club. And it was pretty depressing. Um, but I kept having this, you know, hope that maybe, you know, um, George Martin's got a cousin who lives in Basingstoke and he might be visiting and he might go to the, to the Basingstoke <laughs> Royal Navy Club one night and discover us and go, wow, these guys are really good. But that never happened, of course. But no. Um, so then, <clears throat> then uh, the guitar player in the band, um, he answered an ad in NME um, for a, for an audition in London, you know, which was like you know a million miles away. It felt at the time, and he went up. And um, first of all, he it was a rehearsal room in Chelsea, and he walked into the wrong room, and it was um, Billy Idol was in there with Generation X, and they're like, "What do you want?" <clears throat> you know with this classic sneer and then he went next door <clears throat> found the band that was that he was supposed to be auditioning for and they were all um etonians the band was made up of etonians and the the leader was valentine guinness of guinness you know basically an heir to guinness yeah. and um the bass player was princess di's cousin and <clears throat> the keyboard player was actually a fairly normal human being whose parents slaved to get him into Eton rather than being a trust fund kid. And um, the the reason they were auditioning is because their 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 um, guitar player overdosed on heroin. And, oh. and then shortly afterwards, the, the drummer overdosed on her uh, overdosed too. I'm not, I think it was a heroin. And um, and then my mate said, "Well, I." I know a drummer who'd be interested. So I got the gig and then me and my mate used to drive up to London and rehearse and in this massive mansion that you would never believe was in London. It was huge, um, which belonged to um, Valentine's stepfather at the time, who was the Minister of Transport, Paul, Paul Channon, I think his name was. And um, it, it was in by the river in Chelsea and it had a servant's cottage parking for six vehicles multiple floors and um uh, one time i was in there and i went there to rehearse and valentine valentine said oh princess margaret's here so if you meet her don't forget to bow and <clears throat> and we rehearsed in this secret room where the first time we went there we walked through a dining room it's looked like a state dining room, you know, with massive chandeliers and high back chairs, and it was seating for about 14 people or something. And he walked straight towards the wall, and I thought, where's he going? I'm carrying my drums behind him. <clears throat> and then he just sort of touches something, and a wall moves, and we're into this secret room, which is about 40 foot long by about 30 foot. And it's got a Steinway, it's got two antique harps, this massive fireplace. And that was basically our rehearsal room. Wow. And the house, the house was so big that we, we could be up there playing flat out as loud as we want and come down and his mum would say, oh, Valentine, I didn't realise you were in today. <laughs> um, it was the most bizarre time. Um, but we, we got to play gigs um, that, you know, a lot of bands, <clears throat> unless they were bigger, would have got to play because you had to kind of pay to play at places like the Marquee. Yes. So, so did the band have any talent? Did you think, or was it just <clears> kind of like, well, this is quite an interesting trip? Well, I, they was Valentine was definitely talented. He wasn't the greatest singer, but he was kind of very much into Lou Reed, and uh, it was sort of like new wavy pop, um, but a bit Lou, Lou Reed influence at the same time. He was actually good, and we did get, we got to a point where I remember thinking, wow, we are, we are actually good. You know, it's just one night. I remember people, were, instead of people just ignoring us, um, people would like paying attention. And, and I, you know, we'd played for about a year at that point. And I think we'd actually got really quite tight as a band. And some of the songs were pretty hooky. 
Um, the prob the problem with the band was that when you've got somebody who who hangs out with Princess Margaret and also Mick Jagger because they they had a house in Mystique between those two, so they were kind of mates. And then the bass player was mates with Brian Ferry, and um, you don't have so much incentive to actually work to be a rock star when you can live like a rock star. Um, yeah. So we we kept getting people. You know, my mate and I, who uh, the guitar player Russell, he he worked building Trident missiles at Aldermaston, um, the uh, atomic weapons research establishment, and you know we were desperate to not do our daytime jobs. I was driving a lorry, and um, you know Valentine, people would always go up to the singer, and you know the A and R man or something would go up and say, "Yeah, I'm really interested. Call me." And then we get to the rehearsal next week and you go, Valentine, you know, what happened? Did you speak to the guy from EMI? It's like, oh no, I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, whereas most people in that position would be desperate to get a record deal. And we <laughs> just kept, he just kept not quite managing to pull it off because that would actually mean he would have had to work. Yeah, it's interesting just to kind of briefly and slightly distracting you. But that Guinness thing and Jagger is quite interesting because I grew up in this village and there was a little company of kind of weird hippies, not weird hippies, they were hippies and they were dropouts, but they did ballooning, they did balloons at fairs and festivals and then they got the gig for the Rolling Stones to do the honky-tonk women tour. So suddenly these, you know, dope-smoking hippies suddenly were touring the world with the, the Rolling Stones. And one of them, you know, got, you know, got involved and married the, the PA of... Um, Mick Jagger, who was one of the Guinness, you know, one one of the Guinness, and he was like, "My God, Keith has just kind of married into the Guinness family," you know, and he was like this dope smoking hippie who was just never going to go anywhere, and it's like, ching ching, and he's like, "See you later." <laughs> so I yeah. think he lives in a castle in Southern Ireland now, and it was like it was ah. an amazing story. So when you mentioned the Guinness and Jagger, it's like, Jesus, that is that is serious money, isn't it? Because you suddenly have a castle to your name. Yeah, well, it was all. I mean. It was an eye opener because you realize that these these kids were not happy. You know, they were all apart from Valentine, everybody was doing heroin. Right. Uh, no, sorry, the keyboard player didn't because he he was one of these wasn't a trust fund kid, but nearly all those trust fund kids were doing heroin. And at one point, um, there was a friend of Valentine's who had been at because he ended he went to Oxford, Christchurch College, Oxford. Um and we actually played the May Ball there, supporting Gary Glitter once, which was an event. Um, but there was a there was this um, the Earl or somebody uh, who had been at college with um, uh, Valentine, and he was going to sponsor the band. And he was ultra ultra rich for his age because he didn't. His father had died, and he'd inherited like five million at the time, which was quite a big deal but then he'd invested it in oil wells in texas and he'd made it and turned it into like 25 million and he was really sharp and he was going to sponsor us and he was going to give us a house in florida and my you know russell and i the normal people were like you are yes i'm gonna to go to america and valentine was like oh, i'm not sure and we're like god's sake and then we didn't end up doing it but then later on i saw an article about this guy and he completely blown his entire family fortune that had been, you know, they, they'd owned thousands of acres and they were the Earl of, you know, whatever, I can't remember what area. Since the 13th century, they'd had massive wealth. And then this guy who, who was going to sponsor us blew the entire lot in, in his lifetime by the time he was 40 something, because he got into, um, he got into Coke crack i think and um he ended up living in work he died like penniless he had one worker's cottage left out of his entire estate of thousands of acres and, <clears throat> and that's what you know we were in that crowd you know we were in that crowd of these incredibly wealthy but desperately unhappy kids and the bass player in the band he lived in this amazing um duplex was like three floors in in amazing place in fulham next to richard attenborough and he lived there with 
his two sisters and that all three of them are on smack <clears throat> and the parents didn't never noticed i mean how could you not notice you've got three kids on smack it was it wasn't until one of them fell down the stairs and broke a leg and didn't do anything about it for about a week that the parents suddenly realized and cut off their money right but but we played at the most ridiculous gigs where i said to russell you know if we could just kidnap one night's audience and hold them to ransom we we'd be you know billions <laughs> the richest richest kids in the country were at our gigs <clears throat> and wow. um um we used to get written up in Tatler, you know, you know Tatler the Society yeah. magazine, and the, another one called the Ritz, I think it was called. And um, it was never about us, really, about the band. It was about who was there. Yes, <clears throat> absolutely. I suppose it was one of those. They have those pet spreads, don't they, where they just have pictures of people going to events where, yeah. you know, and you need to be seen there with your lady pet. Sophie, blah blah, with you know, yeah. right honourable, and they're like. Teenagers, you know, and oh and the, the interesting thing was like there there was loads of really sexy girls, and and most of the guys were just like terrible dancers. It was just seemed a thing with with that genre of people that the girls are really sexy and the guys can't dance. Yeah, they're like oh, sports jackets, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose it was the time when you had the jumper over the shoulder <laughs> look, didn't you, as well? And the, oh yeah, yeah, the yeah. Shirt and pastels, very pinky yeah. colours and blue, light blues. So, did you were you kind of aware? Because you were obviously in London, and this was the all that sort of indie world that was happening with like the early years of the C eighty six. You know, I suppose you know all those independent record labels and you know, the room at the top or the living room and all these kind of little indie clubs and all these kind of bands that were starting like Simple Minds and Big Country and then you two and then the Smiths and you had all that gang from Liverpool and Manchester and, you know, all mm. these kind of like, you know, quite shabby and, um, yeah, jingly jangly. Were you kind of thinking, oh, blimey, what, what, what's happening over there while sort of going, oh, more cocaine? Mm. <laughs> well, I was... Um... I wasn't that aware of that much going on until I got into the studio world, I think, um, and started living in London properly. Because at this point, I'm playing in London, but I'm still driving home at like four in the morning to get up at six to drive a lorry. And um, and then, um, I mean, really, my you know my introduction into actual studio world is quite it's quite a good story. I think it's um, I was. So I was with the Guinness band and we finally got offered a record deal, <clears throat> but it, it was a bit of a dodgy guy and he was like one of them, you know, and I thought it's just, it's just, he's just playing at it. He's never going to do anything. So I got a contract and, and I was looking at it and I said to my dad, I got this contract and I don't understand a word of it, you know? And he said, well, I think there's somebody involved in music in my um, account, local accounting company, which was a farm accountants basically. And I was thinking, well, that sounds, you know, a bit of a stretch. But it turned out to be Chris Difford from Squeeze's brother, Lou Difford. And, I mean, he really got me going. He, you know, it was down to him that I, I had a career in music, really. Because I, he, we called him up and he said, sure, come on. You know, I'm a, I, I do this all day. I'm an I'm accountant for um, Elvis Costello. And so he went through the contract and said, no no don't sign this don't no, that's rubbish you've just given this clause gives away all your merchandise so he was brilliant and i kept in touch with him and then in the meantime i got a gig oh because of a producer who wanted to produce a female producer who wanted to produce the guinness band um i was in a studio she took us into a studio and valentine paid and we did we did some demos and that was about it when nothing else happened because valentine never followed up properly but later on, she called me and asked me to do a few sessions. And through her, I ended up meeting um, Carlene Carter, Johnny Cash's stepdaughter, um, her manager. And Carlene was in London living with Nick Lowe. They, they were married, I think, maybe, or they're living together. And she wanted a drummer. And uh, so I actually got a proper gig. You know, I gave up my lorry driving to play with Carlene Carter, who was just releasing an album that they wanted to tour in Europe. And um, 
that was a big deal for me. And um, but then you know I didn't really get on because I never I never took drugs. I've never still never taken a drug. And um, I was in this band where I was the the new kid, the young young one, and <clears throat> everybody else was like coked out of their brains. And I I went from like getting up at six in the morning to drive lorries to okay, well rehearsal will start at three. And I'm thinking three o'clock. It's a bit late to start work. And I drive up to London and we were in like the fanciest um, rehearsal space in London where we were rubbing shoulders with Wham because it was owned by Wham's management. So Wham were in there, Motorhead were in there. Um, just like it was all big names because it was like a fancy hotel with, with rooms to rehearse in. There. It was really posh. And so that was a great experience for me. But uh, I ended up running a marathon because I'd be getting up still waking up early and I think, oh, I, mean, I could go for a run. And I ended up going to London having run 13 miles and feeling amazing to get to the, to get to the rehearsal room where everybody else is crawling out of bed to get there by three and then chopping lines out on the, on the piano to get them motivated. And I'm like, come on, let's go. And then of course they play twice as fast as they should do because they've just taken a line of Coke and I'm trying to keep up. But um, so I was a bit disillusioned by, you know, we, we went on tour and basically our album didn't really do anything and the, most of the tour got cancelled, but we got as far as going to Sweden, which was fun. And, you know, I'm up in the morning running around Sweden going, wow, this is uh, Stockholm. It's amazing. Oh, and there's, you know, crawl out of bed just in time for the gig. So I didn't really fit in that well. And then we did a live gig from Mar the, the Marquee, a live broadcast for some, re for some TV show. And, um, and then Carleen uh, buggered off back to America without paying us. Um, and I was like, oh no, I got it. what am I gonna do now? It was, it'd only been about three months. And I thought, oh God, I really don't wanna go back to driving lorries. And then Lou Difford called me out of the blue and said, I don't know what you're doing at the moment, but I've just torn my Achilles tendon and I need to, I need somebody to drive me to London. I just wondered if, you know, if you're not doing anything, you'd be interested. And then you could hang out in Elvis Costello's management company and maybe help out. And I, and I was like, yeah, that sounds good. And, and that's how I got in <clears throat> and eventually played some demos I'd made in my dad's cow shed. At that point I had a reel to reel machine and um, an 808 drum machine and a Roland keyboard. And, and with Russell, the guitar player from the Guinness band, we were making these sort of human league kind of demos. And Elvis Casello's manage, manager, Jake Riviera, got to hear it eventually. And he called me in and he was like a scary manager type. He was like, you, he's like the manager from um, Spinal Tap with a cricket bat. I mean, he, <laughs> He was known to deck people. If he walked into a venue and he didn't like the sound that Elvis was getting, he'd like punch him in the face and take over. And <laughs> he, was, he was pretty intimidating and he hadn't really talked to me much. You know, I was just a runner as far as he was concerned. But he called me in and, and his secretary said, you've got five minutes with Jake. And I was terrified. And he said, okay. And his, his office is just full of, you know, gold discs, tapes and and people walking in hand holding up stuff and he's like no i hate it get rid of it you know <laughs> stuff like that and and uh he says okay i'll listen to your listen to your demos um they're pretty good you've got to make your mind up whether you want to be a drummer or a record producer if you want to be a record producer i can help you at which point i was like um okay yeah <laughs> agree with there you be, there, there seems to be only one right answer here and he, he, he basically looked around randomly at piles of cassettes. He, he picked one out, played about two seconds of it, and he went, okay, I want you to produce this song, and I'll get Paul Carrick to sing it. And, and I'm thinking, Paul Carrick? Because this was like a year after Squeeze had released How Long, which you know, is a mega famous song featuring Paul Carrick. So he's, he's, I'm thinking, Paul Carrick going to sing on, my demo, on a demo? And um, he said, I said to him, where do you want me to do it? And he said, wherever you did your other stuff. At which point I could barely bring up the fact that it was in a cow shed in Hampshire. I was thinking, how am I going to 
you know, Paul Carrick's never going to drive out to a cow shed. And my, my cow shed literally was a cow shed. It was still with cow shit on the walls and broken windows covered with fer plastic fertilizer bags and a bit of padding, uh, you know, egg boxes really stuck to the ceiling. Classic, yes. It, it was really raw. And, <clears throat> but sure enough, Paul Carrick drove from London to sing on a demo with this guy who's never done anything in his life. Um, and was just amazing. He was such a nice guy. And he, he opened up his, I think he was out of Volvo, and he opened up the boot and he said, I, I brought this, and it was a Lindrum. It was like brand new at the time, pretty much. It was like when they first uh, came out, I think. And, um, and I, he said, you know, we might want to just play around with this. And I was like, whoa. So we programmed the things on it. And, and then he sang on the same crappy equipment that everybody else sounded terrible on um, and sounded amazing. And at which point I realized, oh, it's the voice that counts. <laughs> you know, because I had a real, I had this reverb that was built into a piece of guttering, like a spring inside a piece of guttering, which just made a wobbly, slightly echoey sound and a really shitty cheap microphone. And Paul sounded pretty great on it. Yes. So, so that was it. And then, a couple of weeks later, Jake calls me into his office again. He goes, yeah, I like what you did. Um, I've, got, I've got two guys that I manage who are building a brand new studio. I'm going to suggest they take you on as an assistant. You've got to start at the bottom and work your way up. And I was, went straight into the studio owned by Clive Langer and Alan Wynn Stanley, who produced all the Madness hits, 25 consecutive top five hits, and Dexy's Midnight Runners, Come on Eileen. Um, yes. Because it, it was at that stage, because you mentioned Elvis, because I remember getting that, the album Punch the Clock, which was when Elvis had changed kind of slight direction hunting and was looking for something a bit sort of more chart topping, really. Can you remember well, that? That? Was the, that was the album that they'd done yeah. uh, prior to me working in the studio. That was not long in the bag, that, that studio. I mean, that album, I think. Um, so that had all helped to pay for them to build a brand, you know, a really top flight studio in in um, shepherd's bush and so i got in there and, and it was you know i was just felt incredibly lucky like i knew i felt like oh my god this is where i'm supposed to be yes. and you know the first day ray davis was in there and then it was um a guy mixing duran duran you know i mean imagine 1980 this was 1984 duran duran were massive and then the human league came in and they were massive so because it was a very new, expensive studio, we only had big bands, really, or bands with a lot of money behind them. Yeah, because it's interesting, because that period, there was kind of the indie stuff, which was like out there and John Peel and all that kind of gear. Then you had the Trevor Horn production sound, which was quite like, it sounds quite dated now, I think. And then you obviously are a bit more in that sort of middle ground where the, 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 the records that were being produced and recorded at that point don't quite have that, oh my God, yes, that, you know, when you listen to Talk Talk, I know it's a famous song, um, but it yeah. sounds, it kind of could do with being remixed, couldn't it really? Well, I don't know. I love that stuff, to be honest. I think, I, think, um, I wouldn't remix it unless you wanted to do a creative remix. I think you know, to change it up drastically. But um, mm. I love, I love pop. I love, I love the Trevor Horn stuff. Um, I mean, uh, you know, I really was more pop minded than just about anything else. Um, yes. But you work um, with people like Lloyd Cole and the commotions and also. Well, that, yeah, that was, that they were being produced by um, Clive and Alan. And I was just beginning to be, uh, graduating to be an engineer so i think i got engineering credits on some of that album what's the what's the album what's the album uh, rattlesnakes not rattlesnakes it was uh lost weekend was the sing this the big single off it um was it main mainstream no no oh looks i mean i can find it on my website um uh so I, and then I got my, one of my first mixes was, was uh, being allowed to do a, a B-side mix in, uh, 
in Studio B, they let, they were like, oh well, well, let, well, you know, Mark can do your B side, mix your B side, and it and it was actually a fantastic song, and I was you know I was like suitably terrified at the thought of being left alone with a band for the first time that actually had hit records. Yes, that must have been that must have felt like a quite a a step up. Yeah, it was. They were really nice guys, and I'm still friends with the drummer. He's got a Scottish. Scottish Italian restaurant in um, Crouch End somewhere, I think. Um, yeah, he's a, they were really nice guys. And um, so it, it felt, you know, it was, it was a lucky to have nice people like that to do first mix with. But mm. there was one funny thing. The keyboard, keyboard player was um, Blair. They were all very, they were all very like uh, intellectual guys, you know, university. And they were very well spoken. And Blair tapped me on the shoulder at one point. He was really softly spoken. He said, do you think my organs are shade too nebulous? And I was thinking, I have never seen a nebulous button on this desk. What the hell? And then uh, the drummer went, a bit too much reverb, maybe. I was oh, right, right, right. <laughs> you know, my education didn't lead to words like nebulous. Um, no. So, so that was, but that was great. And they even put that song on their best of because it was just a really beautiful, you know, a really nice uh, Lloyd Cole song. Um, and uh, I still can't remember the, uh, Easy Pieces. I think Easy it's Pieces, yes. I think that was probably their third one, wasn't it, before? Yeah. There was a sort of, you know, oh, wow, wow. Oh, they've gone. I don't know. It's a bit cruel to say it, but they, you know, most yeah. bands do have a few years and a few. So then... Yeah. It, in 85, you, you hit gold, don't you, with your moment with Mick Jagger and David Bowie? Yeah, well, that was a year, a year and one day after I started in studios. And it was pretty amazing. Um, Bowie had been in the studio for a while, on and off, because um, Alan and Clive were producing the soundtrack for Absolute Beginners, the film that Bowie was in. And it it was all about the jazz world, you know, sixties jazz world in London. And it could have been a great film, but it didn't turn out to be a very good film, unfortunately, but the music, the soundtrack was great. And there were a lot of heavyweight um, people, Paul Weller. Um, there was an amazing brass um, arranger who'd worked with Miles Davis called Gil Evans. And he did a lot of the brass arrangements for the, the real jazz stuff. Um, there was some odd, there's a guy from Tenpole Tudor who was, okay. did a song. Um, there was a, you know, it was, it was pretty mixed and it was a brilliant time for me because I was just beginning to, that was probably just after Lloyd Cole and I was doing more engineering, but still not that confident. And I was thrown into these sessions where there'd be like 15 people playing live in the studio. There'd be like nine brass players and <clears throat> Because they were jazz, we'd had to we'd had to have a bar put in the studio because the jazz musicians can't apparently can't operate without alcohol. So <laughs> they had a bar put in, and Alan and Clive would take him, you know, imbibing as well with everybody else. So they were not working at full steam. And at one point, I remember on one of the first big sessions, and I, I was just out of my depth. You know, there's people talking to me like I can't hear, but you know, and I'm like, oh yeah, right. Um, uh, oh, that microphone's not working. And then I turn around. Finally, I've just got a sound together. And I turn around and I go, Alan, what do you think? And Alan's lying on the sofa. I'm like completely on my own. And this is with, you know, this mega famous um, arranger, Gil Evans, um, coaching the brass players. And, and, you know, it's his thing. And, and you know, I'm not like barely, barely know what I'm doing. Yes. And then, so then, um, you know, but Bowie was in and out for several weeks and he was amazing. Um, I remember the first time he came to the studio, Alan and Clive were like visibly nervous because he, he was the biggest thing that, 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 you know, biggest star that they'd ever worked with. Although they did turn down Madonna, which if I'd been working there at the time, I think I would have been really upset. Blimey. Um, they did it. Madonna did a showcase for them and they were like, mm, no, nah, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Um, so anyway, but Bowie came, 
we were all waiting for Bo to show up. And I was kind of expecting some, you know, big deal, like an entourage. Like I didn't imagine just Bowie. I imagine there would be people, you know, Bowie's people. But he just, this, this cab showed up, you know, and out popped Bowie. And he came in and he, he seems like, um, he appeared to be much smaller than I imagined. And he's like, hello, I'm David. <laughs> and, and I thought, wow, this guy's nothing like I'd expect. And then I realized about an hour later, he's completely changed. His, his accent's changed, he's much more well-spoken. He seems to have grown. <clears throat> and I realized, you know, when they talk about him being a chameleon, it's totally true. Like he, I think he did that whole little, um, hello, um, hello matey, I'm David. It was like, make people feel at more at ease. Yes. And then he, and then he grew into a superstar status. <clears throat> and it was uh, it was quite odd being being around him because because he kept changing, you know. And you know, I felt like I don't know who he really is. Can't really get my head around him. And then then one day we're doing this title track, um, "Absolute Beginners," <clears throat> which was a great song uh, that he'd written, Bowie had written, uh, and. Um, and halfway through the day, there was a rumor that Mick Jagger was coming in for something. And Live Aid was being organized. And, and we thought, oh, it's probably, we're gonna have to record David and Mick on the mic going, give your money to blah, blah, you know, yes. just, just to put on the radio or something. And then about four o'clock in the afternoon, five o'clock, two backing singers arrived and said, we're here for the Bowie Jagger session. And we were like, what? And then a percussionist showed up with a load of stuff. And then a piano player showed up. And, um, and then th this was going to be the biggest session in our, we didn't have quite have enough mic cables, we realized. So the uh, studio tech guy was furiously making new mic cables. And, um, and then at, at like, uh, it was about six o'clock, Bowie said, okay, we're stopping work on this song on Absolute Beginners. Um, Mick Jags is gonna be in here a minute and we, we've got to record this. And he, he tossed a cassette to me and I put it in and it was Dancing in the Street. So he said, okay guys, to the, to the band, the live band that he had, who were uh, mostly Thomas Dolby's band that he kind of pilfered. And they basically took, took a little blaster into the live room and kept playing it and worked out their parts. And, and then until Jagger showed up and <clears throat> it was, we only had three hours to do this, to do the mix. And then they were going to make the video the same night. So they only had a limited, they had from six o'clock till dawn the next morning to do the song and the video. So we literally, they said they allocated three hours to, to make the recording. And Jagger was just brilliant though. Uh, and, and at this stage, um, Everybody who had an excuse to come to the studio was there, who'd heard that Jagger was coming in. All of a sudden, there were people from the film side who had not shown any interest in the soundtrack whatsoever, were all there, you know, and their kids, the producers of the film. So when, when Mick Jag Jagger walked in, <clears throat> there were at least like 13 people at the back of the room and I, I was thinking, oh, God, he's probably going to freak out. You know, it's like hardly like a private recording session. Yes. And he did look a bit shocked when he walked in, but he immediately just like got on with it. And uh, he was brilliant. And, and it was really noticeable. The difference between him and Bowie was like, Mick is what you, what you see is what you get. You know, he was just like, I realized that he could not stand still when music's playing. Like the, the band were playing little bits and then stopping, but and he'd be chatting to somebody and he'd be standing still and then the music starts and he's just like yeah. <laughs> doing doing Mick Jagger dances and talking at the same time having a conversation and the music would stop and he'd stop, but like at no time could he stand still when music was playing, and it was fantastic, and then they all went into the room. The band said, "Okay, well, we're ready. I think we're ready. We've worked it out." And there was a vocal booth that was quite, one booth that was quite big and the two backing singers, two female backing singers, 
and Mick and Dave were all in there on like four microphones. And then the rest of the band were all playing together. And they rocked this. I mean, it was just like amazing. They did, they did two takes and I think we picked the first take and that was it. The tr track was done. And then um, they decided to re it sounded fantastic anyway, but they decided to redo all the vocals because all the vocals were spilling onto each other's mics. So they were going to give it to um, the mega famous um, Bob Claremont and mega famous right. mixer in, in America to mix it. So they thought they'd better clean up the vocals and, and redo them. So there's separation. And so Mick went first and I was, I was in control at that point. I had, to, I was pressing play and record and sitting in the middle of the speakers, looking straight at Mick on the other side of the glass and thinking, shit. <laughs> I literally had like hairs on the back of my neck sticking up and sweat running down my back. And I'm like, okay, okay, Mick, here we go. And pressed the play and record. And Mick launched into exactly what he would do if he was playing in front of like 60,000 people in an arena. It was the same performance for me and the 13 people in Clive and Alan. It was just mind blowing. Like he, he was strutting around the room in between the vocal lines and you think, where's he gone? He's, because <laughs> it was a bit dark. You're like, he's gone, he's gone. Oh, here he is. He just comes back in time. And it was just a perfect uh, performance. And we, he did it twice and um, neither one there was anything wrong with. But when we listened, we listened to both. <clears throat> and my, and Clive, who was a bit drunk uh, because he was so nervous, he said, oh, I think, I think maybe that line on the, on the one line's better on the second one. And Mick just looked at him and was like, okay. But you could see, like, I don't really think it makes any difference. You know, he just, <clears throat> and I think Clive, Clive just sort of went to me. Oh, I probably could have kept my mouth shut. Yes. Uh, so anyway, that was it. And then Bowie, who always did this on every song that we worked on, <clears throat> he'd always sing along with the band when the band were, we were trying to capture the tracks. Um, so he'd always be in a booth and sing along. And like every single one of Bowie's vocals was brilliant. He didn't sing crap. You know, he didn't phone it in. And he, um, I just don't remember him singing duff notes. You know, it was always like, he's got such a brilliant voice. But then he'd want to do the vocal for real when the, when the band had got all their parts down. And he'd always do it line by line and then stop which I never could get my head around. I was just thinking, you sung it like 25 times when the band had been playing and they've all been brilliant. Why do you want to do it line by line? And often he'd have a Walkman with the headphones around his neck and he'd say, okay, let's do the first line. Wait, let me just check the demo. Okay, got it. Let's do the first line. And then he'd go, okay, stop. Let me check the second line. It was just really clinical the way he worked. And... And he did that, even though that we were kind of running out of time, he did it. And every line was like brilliant. I don't think we ever had to do a line twice, but yes. it was, uh, it was just very odd. Like, you know, the brilliant, amazing difference between him and Mick. Um, what, what a moment. God, that was, that was extraordinary. Just briefly, what happened to, cause I keep thinking, what was the name of your first band, by the way? And that Valentino. Oh, Pardon? Panic. 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 Panic, yes. Is he yeah. still alive? He's still, I just got an email yesterday. He's still trying to be a pop star. And he's the same age as me, so he's 61. And he, they, they were playing at Glastonbury not long ago because uh, Lloyd Grossman was at Eton with them. And, you know, I heard, I heard Lloyd Grossman on TV once when I was living in America, and I thought, that voice, I know that voice. Where do I know that voice from? It's so familiar. And then, and then I saw a tin of something because he makes food, right? He sells yes. sauces. And I, I think there was a picture of him on it. And I thought, I know that guy. He used to hang around when we were playing in London. He was always at the gigs with Valentine. So now he's a celebrity. That gives Valentine, you know, a chance to get in and play somewhere like Glastonbury. 
And um, he just literally released a new single and video like yesterday. Um, <laughs> but he's never done anything else in his entire life. Um, Excellent. Which is pretty sad in a way, you know. Um, there was one time where I really wanted to deck him because when we, when I was in the band in like 1980 something, and I was getting up at six driving lorries and getting home from gigs, you know, and barely having any sleep at all. And, and he was paying for us to go into a studio. So on a Saturday we went, I stayed overnight at his massive mansion. Um, and we were going to go to the studio at nine o'clock in the morning, which for me was a big lion. And for him, he was all excited. And as we were leaving the studio, leaving his massive mansion to go to the studio, he said, oh, this is really fun. It's like going to work. And I thought, <laughs> you, <laughs> you privileged, you know, uh, he's like, you have no idea what it's like to go to work. This is not going to work. We're going to play, we're going to play in a studio. Uh, anyway, so, um, but you know, he was a nice enough guy. And yeah. And still his, alive. Wife, his wife did really well, you know, Lucinda Guinness. She's um, Lulu Guinness. She sells like million, millions of pounds worth of handbags every year, I think. Nice. So look, just briefly, because um, there's not much time. I mean, <clears throat> what, I mean, God, you haven't, we haven't even touched the 90s, have we? I mean, what would you have said to your 18-year-old self starting out in the world that is kind of the music industry? Because obviously you've managed to, <clears throat> you know, a bit like that guy, Jimmy Iovine. He took his moment, didn't he? You know, he got that session with John Lennon sort of for a weekend and just never let go. And you obviously had a similar moment where you thought that's it and I spoke to that a producer called Tim Palmer the other day and he had oh, a moment good. and he had a moment didn't he you know it's like oh do you want to work with this band and that band like I think it was Kajagoogoo and then Cutting Crew mm. and it was like oh okay then and it was like well well done you've got the gig and it's like Christ that's lucky you know it was like again yeah. the whole thing with apprenticeships was like you were talking and Tim was like yeah that's that's how you did it you did the apprenticeship and you had to be there and you got given, you know, the chance to do, I almost died in your arms tonight. And it was like, oh, well, actually you're probably quite good at this, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, well, do you, I mean, I had to, um, <clears throat> I wasn't a kid, you know, most, a lot of people start off in the studio as an assistant, they get straight from school and, you know, the career opportunities person goes, oh, well, if you want to get in music, I can get you a job as an assistant in the studio. And, and you're not really desperate to, you know, to get on with it, I think at 16, but I was 22 or 20, what was I, 84, uh, yeah, 79, I was 20, yeah, so I was 25, I think, right, 25, and I was really hungry, you know, so when I was assistant, I was paying, the first day I had the manual for the board out, you know, because really I was a T-boy, you're called a T-boy, those days and um uh and then, you know i just thought i'm i'm not i have to know how this works now you know i'm not sitting around so i and then any time i had a day off and that was pretty rare and usually you're working all night the, the night before your day off so i would be back in the studio with a, with a, somebody i knew who i could record and get because they would just let you do that you know that was their because nobody really taught you anything. You just had to watch and learn and listen. And so I was, I don't think I had hardly any days off where I wasn't in the studio. And, um, but I just knew that it was in the, I was, I was in the right place. I felt good about doing that. Um, and my bosses also threw me in the deep end all the time. Whereas Trevor Horn's studio, a friend of mine, Danton Supple, who is a, you know, successful guy who's worked with Coldplay. He was eight years an assistant. Um, you know, the first year, you're not even allowed to touch the desk. You have to be a night receptionist for a year just to see if you stick it. And, but my bosses would throw me in the deep end. Within like three months, I was an assistant on an Asia album for six months and I didn't really know what I was doing. And the constantly, like, you know, during the uh, Bowie stuff, they were just getting, getting a bit uh, drunk and letting me get on with it but that I was very lucky that I wasn't in a studio where they they you know had this whole system of trying to break you down to see if you're tough enough to make it before you even get into a control yes. room 
Um, you know, but uh, I guess the the other really lucky break was the chameleons. Um, you know about the chameleons, right? The, uh, Mark Burgess. Yes. Yes. That was that was a lucky break in the fact that that threw me out of the comfort of that studio really early. Whereas, you know, I should have stayed in that studio as a house engineer for, you know, a good five years probably, um, having the safety net of a studio rather than being self-employed. But I was only I was an assistant for one year, then an engineer for one year, then I went freelance, which is crazy. But I went because Dave Allen, the guy who's produced a lot of the Cure stuff. Um, he was working with the chameleons and, and we did three tracks in the studio that West side where I was started. And then he said, I want to do the rest of the album in a residential. I want you to come with me. And I was like, Ooh, blimey, you know, I've been engineering for very long. And he was like, come on, you know, they're going to be the next U2. They got, they had massive backing. They were signed by the guy that signed Guns N' Roses and Motley Crue, massive record deal with Geffen. And so I thought, oh, you know, I'll risk it. And as it turns out, they folded, the band folded before the album came out. But that linked me then to um, the Cures label because Dave Allen was managed by the Cures label as well. You know, he was working with the Cure, but he was also managed by the label. And he said to the label, can you look after, can you help Mark out? Because he took a big gamble on going freelance. So that gave me my in with The Cure, which was like the biggest deal, you know, for me. Mm. Uh, but it didn't happen instantly because the guy that really, Chris Parry, who signed and really sort of managed the band, was tax exiling on a yacht for two years. So for well over a year, I didn't even meet him. But there was a younger guy who was really into dance music and he led me to, uh, he steered me in a more, you know, electronic um, dancey kind of direction which led me to work with Bomb the Bass which led to Naina Cherry which then led to more pop stuff like Lisa Stansfield and then Chris Parry comes back off his tax exile just as I finished Naina Cherry album and he's like whoa this is really good and he signed the publishing for her co-writer her boyfriend and then he said oh I should hook you up with Robert Smith. So I got to meet Robert and then I mixed Lullaby. It was the first thing I mixed for The Cure. So, so then I sort of had two, two streams of, of people wanting to work with me. I had the pop stuff and I had the, in, the more indie stuff. Yes. So it was really, it was a fantastic position because I loved both of them. Um, and I wasn't like stuck in a rut doing one kind of you know cheesy pop and <clears throat> so I was really grateful for that and that led to like Ian McCulloch and but but really that you know it was the chameleons which then um you know the chameleons didn't come out but then it became like a cult album which got me actually quite a, a number of people have come to me to work with me because they're massive fans of that album Yes. And, you know, like it's not a successful record at all. But the, actually, I'm going to have to go in a bit, Mark. Actually, um, but just to say that Chameleons, there's a production quality, which is kind of really expansive, which is quite unusual for a sort of an indie band. There's kind of like this almost kind of like, yeah, this is made for the stadium rock field, not a kind of little, the art centre or the little university gig. This is yeah, so it's quite epic. Like, epic yeah it's that kind of they really like god so i can imagine why people think actually this is really you know because you're not going to listen to a lot of the indie pop stuff and say we want that because it's kind of of its time but yeah the chameleons and and that kind of expansive sound is just like there's space there which i think sonically is stunning still you know it doesn't really again it, i don't think it ages at all really and then the farm that that came out of like the cure side of stuff yeah and that was a that was a game changer for them because they you know i did um groovy train yes. groovy? oh yes and that was when they came to me they the guitars were strumming all the way through they just had electric guitars <laughs> strumming all the way through the song <clears throat> and it was driving me nuts because you had these loops and stuff so it was kind of groovy 
but it was swamped by guitars. So I couldn't figure out how is this going to work? And then I just started pressing the mute button on the guitars and, and it was going, Dana, stop, Dana, 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 instead of all the way through. And I thought, oh, because they, they, come, they come down to the studio and then gone out to the pub. And they were like rough crowd. They were. I was kind of in, well intimidated by these thuggy scousers, and and I thought, well, I really like this, but what the heck are they going to think? You know, I was th- I was thinking I was going to get punched by the guitar players, and so when they came back from the pub, worse for the wear, I was like, well, you know, I've done something which is pretty drastic, uh, but I think it works, and I played it to them, and they were like, hey, that's great, mate. <laughs> and i was like i dodged the bullet yeah. and so so that kind of changed that was uh, made them much more um commercial you know yeah. i guess that enabled that to get in the charts a bit and that's the end of the interview if you want to find out any more information about Mark Saunders, you can go to the website marksaunders.com. But a big thank you to uh, Mark for giving me the time for that interview. This has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me for some random reason, which is nice, obviously, um, you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do at C86 Show. And also all these interviews have been archived and you can find those on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean just to see 86 show. It's all good. Anyway, have a great week.